0: Welcome back to the BTI Science Bomb, the official podcast of the Boyce Thompson Institute, where we make the discoveries that support agriculture, the environment, and human health. My name is Keith Hannon, and in this episode, we sit down with BTI President David Stern to reflect on the science of 2018 and what the future holds for science research in general. David, welcome to the Science Bomb. I'm a regular <laughs> <laughs> David just returned from California last night so he was very uh, very kind to come in here and fight the jet lag and tell us all about some of the great stuff BTI is doing and especially in this past year alone uh, so uh, one thing I don't know if everyone knows about David is uh, he has a farm of his own so uh, tell us a little bit about your 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 farm at your house and your your work with the farmers market and everything like that
1: Sure. Um, this is my wife's uh, baby. You think you know everything about someone and been married to them for a while, and then you find out otherwise. And My wife had always had a little dream of having a farm, and we ended up with one after she graduated from veterinary school. Uh, they talked us into it. If you visit a farm in New York in the middle of August, the sun's shining, <laughs> the hills are green. <laughs> it all looks great, and we started off like everybody does with some chickens, and then we uh, Went to the cows and the sheep and the ducks and the guinea hens and uh, the dogs and the cats. And I can't remember what else. And we have a a small farm. We um, do a lot of work with the sheep, particularly my wife's passion is the fiber. She does a lot of work with the fiber. We go to festivals and she has... uh, a whole, I think, a whole secret world there that I just see little <laughs> bits and pieces of. She has admirers, and uh, it's just wonderful to see what she can do with her hands, and uh, just so proud of her. And because we have all this land, I got to scratch my horticultural itch. I've been a gardener since I was a little kid, my mom, and all of a sudden there was 200 acres to garden. <laughs> so um, that has been fun to fall in love with farm machinery and uh, making your own hay, and then um, Raising a few crops here and there, some uh, specialty crops, particularly in the, the vegetables and small fruits. And we had to do something with them. And most people who get into hobby farming don't think about marketing and what you're going to do with everything you raise. And that's how I got involved with the Ithaca Farmer's Market. And uh, the Farmer's Market's a uh, worldwide known farmer's market. What's yeah. real special about it is uh, that everyone who sells there has to produce their own goods. So no reselling is allowed, and everything has to come within 30 miles of Ithaca of the market down at Steamboat Landing, and that makes it special. And so we started vending there uh, seven years ago, and all of a sudden, turn around, you've been there seven years, and now I'm the, uh, the president of the board of the farmer's market. Maybe. Wow! All right, another president title. <laughs> you yeah. never have too many of those. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can have a lot. Way too many. Sounds like a lot. As soon as the number gets above zero, you got to start questioning your sanity. <laughs> but they do look for people. Uh, the farmers market is uh, they're they're wonderful people. They they're very creative. The cooks, the artisans, the, the producers, but they're not business people in the sense of running a large cooperative type of business. It's a uh, farmers market's a corporation. It's a for profit corporation. And so um, I've tried to help them with uh, the planning things, the kind of things I've learned at BTI. And um, they also need to plan for the future, just like this organization, Boyce Thompson, does. And so it's been a very interesting interdigitation of two very different activities. But BTI often talks about the future of food uh, and local food production and new crops. And that's what's being sold at the farmer's market. So. Mostly by accident, I've become involved in two ends of, of what you think of BTI doing, discoveries on the one hand and maybe uh, something more specific and tangible for society on the other end. And I happen to be involved in both. It's just been a, it's what happens when you don't bother to plan your life. You can, <laughs> you can be opportunistic, you know.
0: <laughs> well, we just talked with uh, with an alumnus who kind of had a, has had a similar career path. where are just kind of being
1: flexible and adaptable and seeing where you end up and in the science world we need to redefine our uh what a path really is what the word even means right yeah um so the, traditionally you know we always think of pipelines and you get it on a conveyor belt one end to come out the other end and you're <laughs> something but most people aren't very good planners yeah. because um life is too uncertain that's the beauty of it but also the craziness of it so if we try to over plan uh, we usually end up unprepared for what's really going to happen and i think maybe being a bad planner in some respects, uh, like when people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I've never really been able to answer that question. And so now I'm grown up and then some. So considering that, uh, briefly take us,
0: uh, take us on the journey from how you went from a, a little kid who was really obsessed with gardening to now the president of a plant
1: and life science research institute. How do you get from from that to where we are now? Well, I think there's there's two kinds of scientists out there. There's people like me who were uh, born with an advantage. My dad was a scientist, and we call these sorts of people legacies, you know, and, and you'll see an awful lot of people in science who've been around it since they were kids, and obviously I had some admiration, admiration for what my father was doing. Both my sister and I used to go to his lab uh, when we were waiting for him to get ready to go home. and She got into illustration a little bit when she looked through the microscope. I was more interested in maybe the microscope itself. (laughs) And uh, then my dad became a department chair and and got involved in uh, some of the upper levels of administration of uh, this University of California. And you know, he was uh, a very ethical person and he he was uh, uh, respected for that, how he managed people, how he thought about the whole and not about the parts. I was exposed to all of that. And then when I went to college, um, I was a pre-med, but that didn't really suit me very well. I volunteered in a hospital and I didn't like what I was being asked to do. And uh, then I discovered research, just a lot of people do, through a course uh, taught by a scientist who was excited about how discoveries got made, like to tell the stories. And then, you know, you see yourself in one of those stories. And all of a sudden, I was off to working as an undergraduate in the lab. And As I say, I had all the advantages. I, my dad was a faculty member, uh, a lot of the family friends were university. so. I was able to get through doors quite easily. You no know, people knew where they were. Um, of course, you have to bring your own motivation, your own brain to all that. You have to bring something to it. But it was relatively easy for me to get involved. And so I just did science because it was what I liked to do. I was a researcher. I mean, you come into work, and um, you never know what you're going to find. And I had a lot of freedom. I was really lucky where I, where I went to school and what I was allowed to do. And uh, then I got the opportunity to join BTI. It was um, the last interview I believe I did, out of a lot of interviews, job interviews in those days. And um, I was just amazed that there was this place where you could come in and no, there was no real teaching. It was really just a <laughs> research institute that was yeah. focused on plants. And what I did was a plant research. Well, any further questions, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did move from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. I was a postdoc at Berkeley and a grad student at Stanford. and. And it was a very much of a culture shock for me. People did call Ithaca the Berkeley of the East, but uh, that analogy didn't go very far in those days. You couldn't get a good cup of coffee, at least Mm. the kind I thought was good. (laughs) Nobody knew what an avocado was. I had grown up around them, so it's taken a lot of adjustment. But I think you know, again, my path to the presidency was uh, one of happenstance. Uh, There was um, there was a need, and uh, I was interested. I was becoming more interested in how the fabric of science is stitched together, not just in what I could do, or what people in my lab could do on a day-to-day basis, but in fact, how did this all uh, get here? Who makes the decisions about where the money's gonna go? Uh, Where do the big ideas come from? And I knew nothing about any of that, but I'd start to see in action some of the people who did make those decisions at the National Science Foundation and other places, and I guess I became intrigued about that how one could have perhaps a longer view and maybe a longer term effect, maybe a small effect, but one that was um, that was guided by a longer vision or a bigger vision uh, thinking at ten thousand feet or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it and and then I was able to bring that into practice uh, in the presidency so it's been it's been an interesting journey, but certainly not an expected one. <laughs> <laughs> well so you talked about pathways
0: and how we define that and I think that's a really great segue into kind of what's been happening at BTI this past year and maybe even a little beyond. And one of those uh, one of those areas is how we talk about uh, postgraduate training. And you've done a lot of work with collaborators on kind of redefining what that looks like. Why was it important for you to kind of consider a new vision for that? And where do you think it It's currently at right now are you you happy with what what everyone came up
1: with (laughs) are you ever happy really but (laughs) do you feel pretty good about the progress you've made Um, I think we've we've given a name to some of the issues that have been festering for a long time in academia and what I mean by that is uh, as you start to move up and think about things at a higher level you start to see I would I call the 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 social system that's prevalent in, in academia and you know, faculty members have this certain status. Um, it's a little bit exalted, but it's also powerful. So there's a huge uh, power differential, if you will, between a faculty person and the folks that work in his or her uh, laboratory group in most constructs. So in a traditional way of thinking about it, a faculty member would raise some money through, uh, through grant proposals and so on. And then that work would be done by um, essentially apprentices, you know, graduate students, postdocs, and so on. Who would follow that that uh, faculty member's instructions, and so there's there's a power differential there. And so what happens is that the the apprentices, if you will, um, are there to you know perpetuate the career of the faculty member. If we think about it in an extreme way, and so what is it that the who who is caring about the futures of the the students, the postdocs, how is their future being managed and prepared for? So I think in some respects, you know, when I was growing up as a faculty member. You know, I went through laboratories, and I felt I was privileged to be in those places and, and be able to do what I wanted to do, but I'm only passing through. When I left there, I left it all behind, and I had to start all over again. And the tools I got along the way, the training I got along the way, was whatever happened to go along with the research, whatever was inherent in it. And so I think this this is a, a dynamic that's not really healthy in, in academia because – um, it places uh, trainees, if you will, the postdoc students in techs, at a disadvantage because their, their future aspirations are not being taken in, into account enough as they go through their research training. And so the, the group that I'm, uh, the network that I run, the national network called the Plant Science Research Network, is just a grouping of 16 professional scientific societies that's uh, supported by an NSF grant. We wanted to take a look and see what trainees wanted. What could we do for trainees that would support discovery science that would support applied science, but would also support the career development of the trainees themselves. And so now we get to thinking about what does a trainee need? uh, What tools do they need that might be useful in different career paths? If we get back to this idea that we don't really know what we're going to become, we need to be prepared to be flexible. What kind of tools, communication tools, management tools, and so on, what kind of tools will help us in a lot of different paths, and as soon as we started writing our reports and thinking about what this was, we realized it wasn't one path, and we started to try to, uh, this is the PSRN, to come up with uh, the right metaphor for the kind of training uh, we were thinking about. and We had all kinds of metaphors. We had mazes. We had labyrinths. (laughs) We had everything but pipelines, (laughs) but in the end, our report came up with the subway system. And a subway system is where, if you think about a map of a metro system, for example, we used the Washington, D.C. Metro because we happen to have a map of that handy. It was (laughs) recolored and relabeled, but it's the Washington, D.C. Metro. I feel like that one gets pretty good reviews. The trains are a little old, but it goes where you need to go. I think that's the point of it. And there's a (laughs) lot of stations where you can change trains. So in that metaphor... You come, you get on at a certain station. You may come, as I did, from privilege. You may not come from privilege. But there's always a place where you can get on. It might be midlife. It might be uh, from the get-go in life. And then each of the stations represents a kind of training you might want to acquire. It could be experimental training. It could be an internship at a company. It could be uh, a writing assignment. It could be um, something at the national academies, where you're a researcher for the, the reports there, and so on. There are many different kinds of experiences. And the stations could represent those experiences. And at any point, you can get off the train and have a job. So maybe you work in journalism for a while, and you get back on at a station, get some more training, and go on to another job. So the idea is there's there's many paths, and they're all connected. And our training can help take us from one path to another. We can get on and off and so on. And that's a metaphor that I feel quite excited about and quite comfortable with. And, of course, it's something that people already do. But they do it... Um, on their own initiative. They have to figure out what the paths look like, what the training opportunities are. They're not warehoused anywhere, they're not accessible. It's hard to get funding to do those trainings. So the idea that of our report is that this sort of a very flexible system should be formalized and made available and very broadly and especially if it comes with funding will bring in a much more diverse cohort of people not just people from privilege or money who can afford to take chances and to move different places in life to get on and off the train but in fact people who otherwise couldn't do that and we want to make it available to them and so we've been exhorting uh, funders funding agencies to think about different ways of allocating resources to trainees so trainees can choose how to get trained. And so they don't have to go where the money is exclusively and get trained in whatever way would happen by joining that group, that lab, that that organization, if that makes any sense. So we call it trainee-centric training. Mm-hmm. It's customizable, it's modular, sure. and it's directed towards a person's uh, individual career aspirations. And of course, that's what we're trying to do at BTI. We're trying to do that through our education outreach department and through other resources we have here, through some of our donors really support it. And the idea is that BTI is a career stop it's not just a place where you do some science and get out it's a place where you build your skills and the skills can be built for the high school interns for the undergraduate interns for our postdocs or students and technicians and even in our research support staff I don't care who it is they should come out of BTI being a more complete and prepared person than they were coming in if we don't do that we're not doing our all of our mission
0: so that you know that vision is um, as you called it you know kind of trainee centric uh, it's a lot about the development of the individual, but I know you also spend a lot of time or have in the past looking at kind of the future vision of research in general. What does research look like in various uh, budgetary scenarios or you know demand scenarios? I think we talked a little bit about that last year. But does it does this you know uh, opportunity for the individual also support Kind of the flexibility that's going to be needed in the future Mm -hmm. for the general for the general industry.
1: That's a great question. So before we uh, the PSRN did any work on training, we did have to look at the future in a much bigger way. And so again, these were just things I've been taught. I've been uh, fortunate to be around them and to learn them as president. And and so one of these was essentially strategic planning. Mm -hmm. The strategic planning and the way i was first exposed to it made certain assumptions for the future let's say three years or five years out and then one worked towards those assumptions but what if the assumptions are wrong and by the way they almost always are so i was uh i took a course at one point out a mini course on scenario planning which says the heck with it the, the future is uncertain let's embrace that and so again i don't want to rehash what we did last year but we allow ourselves to p- place uh, plant science as a very broad discipline into four different futures that we might encounter uh, in this country and around the world, and the differences in the futures were depending on things that literally are out of control of scientists, like uh, public attitude towards science, the the federal budget, um, you know, climate change, things that we can't really control, but they do influence our ability mm-hmm. to do business. And what came out of those scenarios, which are very different, and they're deliberately very different, is that there's some elements in them that um, are common. And and, and some of those are what you mentioned with your last guest, for example, flexibility and adaptability. So in all of those scenarios, it's really important for scientists, for plant scientists, and probably well beyond plant science, to be able to rapidly change their skill sets and what they do um, to take advantage of emerging opportunities. And so these kind of modular training is a derivative of that, because if we're going to be flexible and adaptable, we can't commit five years to learning something. Five months, yes. Five years, no. So they're really two sides of the same coin. It's just implementing training um, in the view of an uncertain future.
0: And part of that
1: uh, kind of embracing uh, a
0: new path is uh, a new initiative we're trying here with what we're calling a faculty cluster hire. Tell us a little bit about what that
1: is, what that means, and what was kind of the impetus for going down this road. One of the more interesting exercises we conducted in this in this visioning of training was we, we had two workshops uh, one year apart. And The first one was dominated, I'm talking about in numbers, by, by faculty and upper administration and the second one was all trainees, all postdocs and students, technicians, undergraduates. And they came up with one of their ideas, which was really cool. What they called was a virtual laboratory. A virtual laboratory is not a laboratory that's not owned by, quote, unquote, by one faculty member, but it's owned by a bunch of them. And they share this project and they share this laboratory. We got to thinking about that. And then we went into strategic planning with BTI last year. Um, This idea, again, of collaboration came up, how central collaboration is to good science. Mm -hmm. And how do you really get collaboration going? Is collaboration just who you run into in the hallway or by the coffee pot, or is collaboration something that you plan for and you design around? And we decided to design around collaboration. And rather than bringing in scientists one at a time, uh, let's say you hire person A this year, person B three years from now, and hope that they collaborate down the road, We thought, what if we brought them all in at once? What if we brought them in as a team from day one around a collaborative idea? (laughs) And earlier this year, we made a first foray into that. We called it team hires. And that didn't quite work out the way we wanted. We came back with an ad for cluster hires, where uh, in the end of the day, we had a very large pool of talented scientists, extremely talented, very international, from eight countries. We had over 100 applications. They were really interesting people. We brought in um, eight women and five men all in one day and they had a symposium and they presented short talks and they mixed with each other and we provided opportunities for them to vision collaborative projects on the second day. They loved this. Mm-hmm. and they didn't think they were going to love it. (laughs) They thought, oh, I'm going to be brought face to face with my competitors. But they found out the real goal was to make them all collaborators. And a lot of that is how we set up the mechanics of the hiring exercise. So right now, we're waiting for proposals for uh, proposed clusters to come back to us from these 13 scientists. I've seen it Two of them so far, but it's well before the deadline. Um, so I expect- <laughs> so no pressure if you're watching. <laughs> no pressure if you're watching. We're really excited to see your ideas. And uh, and and what we're planning to do in January is bring one, two, three potential clusters back to BTI, and let's talk about how you view your, your collaborative future. And our goal is to land two or three uh, really exciting young scientists here at BTI and diversify uh, our faculty, which is, uh, we're top heavy. And, um, and, and in a new way, in a really novel way, that I think is very, very exciting. And it's exciting to the applicants too, because they don't feel they're going to be judged as uh, icons of science, as people who need to be important individuals, but in fact, as people who are collaborators from day one, people who love to work together with each other on bigger ideas than they could work on by themselves. And I'm just excited at how this is playing out so far, but I'm a little like a nervous father at the same time. You don't want it to fail. Yeah. <laughs> but if it does, we'll try again. So well, it's really interesting, you know,
0: to watch the kind of behind the scenes of research evolve. And you know, what you're doing shows how you have to rethink what you're doing outside of the lab to ensure the best within the lab moving forward. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in, oh, what's happening in the lab? What's coming out of the lab? What new technologies, new discoveries are coming out of the lab? Uh, You might forget what you need to do outside the lab to support the sustainability of of your operation. And so I think it's, it's important that
1: yourself and BTI and other collaborators are really thinking big picture about that. That's the tug of war everybody has. It, sometimes it's called the urgent versus the important. Sometimes it's called the big picture versus the immediate. Right. We all have to get up and have breakfast in the morning. We can't just be dreaming about our wedding day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's just just goes with the territory.
0: Yeah. Well, my last question is, you know, so you've been at BTI uh, a while, both as a scientist and in an administrative role. And I wanted to ask you this question, because it is Giving Tuesday. And it's this national day of nonprofit philanthropy. Uh, you know, and science still is largely funded from, you know, big government agencies for the most part. Uh, but you're starting to see more private philanthropy come in. Bill and Melinda Gates are kind of one famous example. Uh, how do you see the future of funding research? Do you think it's going to become increasingly important to have that private arm? in addition to the the public
1: funding i'll answer that in two different ways one is from a sustainability standpoint of the institute we you know we need to pay our bills we want to keep making discoveries and from that point of view funding diversification is is what it's all about it's that's true for probably all of our compatriot institutions uh, the federal money isn't there uh, the way it used to be uh, the funding rates are low, the budgets are flat, and, and they've gone up a little bit recently, but not as fast as costs have. Mm-hmm. So from a diversification point, a suvi- sustainability point, absolutely, I think a lot of those funds, but certainly not all of them, tend to be more directed uh, towards particular problems to particular issues, maybe a citrus greening today or um, you know um, um, a pathogen tomorrow that that's uh, another new emerging pathogen or you know some other problem that's been identified, a genome that needs to be sequenced. And there are people at BTI who are very good at solving those problems, and they want to they want to do that. But I think the the blue sky discoveries are where uh, it is all what it's all about in the end of the day. If we don't build that foundation of knowledge, we'll we'll never get uh, to be able to solve those problems. And that's what we learned from some of these scenarios that I referred to earlier. So the other way I'll answer your question is to say it's derelict of this country how little it invests in basic research. And the federal government ought to be funding it. I can't think of a better use for tax dollars than to support discoveries into nature, into biology, all sorts of things that'll support our uh, understanding uh, of, of the planet and the things that are on it and support its sustainable future. So I don't think that private donors and philanthropists should be substituting. I think they should be adding to um, a basic corpus of research that is funded um, by the government. It's simply a dereliction of duty, and if you look around the world, the amount of the GDP that the U.S. Uh, is investing into R&D is very low. We're the wealthiest country in the world. We ought to act like it, where our scientific um, heritage and our scientific future is concerned. But I am really, really grateful for everyone who has contributed to BTI. You've helped us keep going. You've helped us move in new directions, and we are counting on that support. It's a fact, and uh, I'm just thankful that that well, we have had such strong support from uh, from our friends.
0: Well, David, thank you very much for your time, and as David said, thank you very much for the individuals and organizations that have supported BTI Science, and you can continue to do that today as well, Uh, btiscience.org slash give. Thank you again to President David Stern. We're taking a little holiday break, but we will be back in January, and we will begin the year with more in-depth conversation with scientists here at the Boyce Thompson Institute. And remember, tell your friends, download this podcast and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, really any podcast. Just send it out and they'll find us. This is the Science Bomb.